we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 4 this morning. That's right, we're going to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you're not sure where that is, just open your Bible to the first page, Genesis, and just go a few books to the right, and you'll be in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Um, while you turn there, just a couple things. I wanted to bring some awareness to uh, one of our ministry teams here at the church, um, the elder body. I think many of you hear us talk about our elders and, and maybe aren't quite sure who that is or what they do, and, and maybe you picture something in your mind of, a bunch of grumpy old men sitting in a room in the dark, you know, uh, praying together or whatever, making decisions together. But these are our elders. I want you to know who they are. Um, if you've been here for over one Sunday, you've seen at least one of them. Uh, these are the men who lead our prayer time in all of our services. So on Sunday morning, we always have an elder come up and lead us in a time of prayer. Um, these are also the men who meet uh, monthly to get together and to pray over you, the church, to talk about the needs of the church and to make decisions uh, regarding the direction of the church. Um, essentially, these are the shepherds of Solid Rock Church who uh, lead uh, Solid Rock Church under the lordship of the chief shepherd, Jesus himself. And so when you hear me refer to the elders, these are the men that I'm talking about. Uh, from left to right, if you're not sure who they all are, on the left is uh, Daniel Henderson. Uh, next is Larry Roberts, who you're going to get to hear from this morning. Uh, then after that is Billy Warren. And then the two gentlemen in the middle who look really young and like they haven't stayed up late at elder meetings yet. These are our two newest elders. They will look much older in about three years. Uh, Nick Hill on the left, and then Mike Devenuto, uh, of course myself, and then David Darlene, and Ken Forsyth, who led us in prayer this morning. These are our elders. We're so honored and blessed to have uh, these men serving uh, the church. I say it often, they love Jesus more than they love themselves, and they love you more than they love themselves. Just example of that, we were in this last elder meeting this past week talking through uh, just some really hard stuff, and, and, uh, and Billy Warren sensed that, that I was just feeling some heavy weight, and so he stopped the elder meeting and just said, guys, let's just pray for Jason, and that's the kind of love that, that I feel from these men and the kind of care that I receive, and, and hopefully you, you feel that as well. So so thankful for our elders. Wanted you to know who they are. All right, so we're continuing in our sermon series, Even Sinners Such As I. We're looking at how the gospel of Jesus meets us in our darkest moments, um, our, modus of, our moments of greatest embarrassment and shame, um, the places where our sin uh, is dark and ugly and we try to hide it. And, and we're looking at how essentially this is why Jesus came to earth. He stepped into our world to save sinners, even sinners like you and I. And so what we're doing this summer is we're walking through and allowing you to get to know our leadership. I've asked the staff and elders to share their stories with you. Uh, today you're going to get to hear a little bit from Larry Roberts and how Jesus has walked with him through life. And today really the, 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 the topic of what we're going to be talking about is how the gospel sets us free from idols. How the gospel sets us free from idols. Now, a couple of things. If you've been here for over a year, you were with us last year when we went through a sermon series dedicated to this topic. We spent around 12 weeks walking through a series called Desires of the Heart, and we looked at how um, the good things that God gives us in life can so easily become idols, these objects of worship. And so what I want to say is, you know, just one sermon series alone isn't enough, because really what happens through something like that is we all begin to become aware of what we need to work on, we begin to become aware of where we need to be set free, but what we're talking about is a lifelong journey with Christ of being set free from idol worship. Rarely does this happen overnight. 
Rarely does this happen as a result of one simple prayer. It's usually, right, in the trenches of life, walking with Jesus for a lifetime, right, that we begin to see these idols, right, begin to lose their grip on our lives. Now, this is so important for us to talk about. One, because here's the thing. Anything in life can become an idol. We're going to see that this morning, okay? And so when we talk about idols, we're talking about anything, anything in your life that holds the position of first love. That's what we mean by an idol. So we're, we're not just talking about carving a gold in, golden image and building an altar and lighting some incense and candles and bowing down and worshiping. We're talking about anything in life that holds that position in your heart of first love. There's a second reason why we're going to talk about this this morning because what we're talking about is essentially the root of every sin struggle in your life. Now, typically, we address sin by what we see on the surface. I was dishonest, I was manipulative, I was selfish, I lashed out in anger, the things that are easy to see, right? That's where we deal with it. And and usually, if we're going to own sin, that's where we own it, because let's just be honest, we're already busted, right? The moment I yell out in anger at my wife, I can't hide that sin anymore, it's out there. And now I've got to own it, I've got to address it. But rarely do we ask the deeper questions and journey deeper into the soul at why, Why we acted out this way? Why was our sin so obvious? And so today we're going to go to the heart of the matter, looking at the root of our sinful desires, our idols. Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting in verse 15. Let's read this together. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, Out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the sea. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Now, as we begin this conversation together, I want to address a couple of things that um, I assume are going on right now. First of all, when we hear about idols or idol worship, we tend to think about the extreme, carving images, setting up altars, and as long as we haven't done that today, we're good. No idols here, right? I didn't carve any totem poles or any golden images, and I didn't build any altars this week and bow down to them, so I'm, I'm good. Right now, now, here's what I want to talk about before we even get into this conversation. The problem with talking about idols is that most of us assume it's not our struggle. And the moment we begin talking about it, we begin to think, well, this is about somebody else in the room. 
I'm just overhearing a conversation that God is having with somebody who actually struggles with this, and it's not about me. What we're going to see today, though, this applies to every person who is in this room who is willing to take an honest look at themselves. I want you to hear me on this. So if right now you think, oh, idol worship, ooh, he's talking about that weirdo across the room. He's talking about that guy over there. I know he struggles with some idols. He's not talking about me. Can we just say, listen, we're not on the same page right now. What I'm asking you to do is to have the courage and the willingness and the humility to take a look at yourself today. Now, another, another mistake that we make is to assume well, we're Christians, so this doesn't apply to us, right? Here's the problem with that. We just read a passage of Scripture where God gives warnings, three of them, right? He started with, watch yourselves, then he said, beware, twice. And who is he speaking to? Well, he tells us. He's speaking to his people. He's speaking to people who've already been set free from bondage and slavery in Egypt. He's saying to those people, his people, people that he has acquired for his own possession, he's saying, listen, you're the very ones I want to warn here. We'll see later, even Jesus himself warns his followers that our hearts are prone to wonder. Our Our hearts are prone to gravitate towards idol worship. Now, after the warning is issued here, this interesting verse is mentioned. Um, since This is the last part of 15. So therefore watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form, because God is saying you didn't see my form. You saw no form on the day that I spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Now if you don't have some Old Testament background, you might not fully know what is being spoken about there. So Horeb was essentially the mountain range of the region uh, from which you found Mount Sinai. So a lot of remarkable things happened at Horeb for the nation of Israel. This is where uh, the Ten Commandments was given uh, to Moses up on Mount Sinai. This is where the Israelite nation uh, encountered the miraculous provision of God when he made water come out of the rock. This happened at Horeb. But the reference here is referring to something that took place in the book of Exodus where Moses is at Horeb and God speaks to him out of a burning bush. And now God is addressing an issue that we all have today. He's saying, like, remember the nation, to the nation of Israel, remember how I spoke to Moses, but I didn't let him see my form? Now, because of that, you're prone to worship things that you see. You follow me? Right, and so we begin to see a parallel even with our lives today. A God who speaks to us through his Holy Spirit, a God who speaks to us through his word, and yet at this point in our relationship and journey with God has not fully revealed his majesty and glory to us, yet it has been promised to us as an inheritance to us, and it's what we're all longing for, right? It's why we say, come soon, Jesus, we're ready to see you. So what God is saying is, because I withhold my appearance from you, you're prone not to worship me. You're prone to allow your heart's wonder to things you can see and touch and and measure and manage and manipulate. And they were struggling with the same thing here as God addressed the nation of Israel. He said, therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Now, the word watch here in the Hebrew language means it's similar to being a watchman. It means to stay up, be alert, and watch out for something that can threaten your life. It's also the word used to describe saving a life. So this is not just a casual warning to God's people, like, hey, guys, you might want to pay attention to this, or this could happen to you. Like, this is a pretty stark warning. God's saying, hey, listen to me, my people. This likely can and will happen to you, and it could cost you your very life. Pay careful attention. Watch yourselves and beware. Now, 
last year in the, in the sermon series, we walked through some of the possible things that, ha- that could become idols to us in our life. And what we acknowledged is this. Most idols are actually good things that God has blessed us with and given to us that we have turned into ultimate things, objects of first love. I'll give you a few of them. Here's some examples. Dreams and ambitions. Now, there's nothing wrong with dreaming. There's nothing wrong with having ambition and having a vision for your life. But when those ambitions and dreams become ultimate to you, your first love, more important than what God has for you, those dreams and those ambitions have become an idol. You follow me? Another example, relationships. Oh, wait a second. I feel like God brought my wife to me. I actually have the the tangible proof that that God brought my wife to me because you can see all the change in my life that has happened through this amazing woman God has brought into my life. And I see my wife, Hallie, as as this beautiful gift from God to me. And you mean to tell me that relationship can become an idol? Absolutely it can. If my love for my wife ever exceeds or supersedes my love for Christ, she has become my idol, my first love. My children, I love my boys. I love spending time with my boys. I also love my time away from my boys. One, it gives me a chance just to recuperate some mental strength and capacity. But two, it it gives me a chance to check my heart and make sure I don't love them too much. It gives me time to miss them and make sure that I don't miss them too much. You follow me? Why? Because those beautiful God-given gifts can become an idol to me when they become a position of first love in my life. Performance. We spent a few weeks in the sermon series talking about this one. This comes by way of the applause of man. When you perform well and you get that applause, that if, if you're not careful, right? There's nothing wrong with somebody saying, hey, good job. Thank you for working hard. But when that becomes your first love, the reason why you work so hard is to attain that applause, that affirmation, that becomes an idol. An accolade, a, an attaboy, an applause from somebody in your life. Uh, being right. Mm. Probably nobody else in the room struggles with this but me. This is like a big practical conversation in our family from husband to wife and from parents to children. The idol of being right is one that we are so diligently trying to put to death. <laughs> and we see it in our boys and we call it out. And the next thing you know, we see it in our relationship and our marriage as well. Anytime that idol of being right, right causes me to treat somebody I love in a way that is unloving, I've allowed that idol to become a first love. The idol of being right, the idol of comfort, the idol of control, the idol of possessions, the idol of health, the idol of work or career, or the idol of money. Now, this is not a comprehensive list of all the idols, but this is a, right, a fairly good indication that anything good can become a first love and hold the position of idols in our life. Now, here's the thing that makes this conversation tricky. First of all, I said we all walk in the room pretty much oblivious to our own idol worship. Like we're pretty good at recognizing other people, right, aren't we? But we're just not great at at recognizing it in ourselves because idols are so good at camouflage. Here's some ways that idols camouflage themselves. They camouflage themselves as necessities. I need this. That's why I'm working 80 to 100 hours a week Not because I love my career, it's my idol. It's because my family needs to eat. It's because my kids need to go to school and they need to have clothes and my my wife needs to be able to purchase stuff on Amazon and like, I just wouldn't be a good husband or dad if I didn't work so hard over here putting in all this time. Because why? 
They need it. And so we, we buy into that lie, that camouflage, that somehow this, right, this, this idol is justified because it's meeting a need. The second way that idols will camouflage themselves is this, you deserve it. Oh, Christ's follower, beware of ever using that phrase, I deserve. When I get home from work, a stressful day at work, I deserve 30 minutes of peace and quiet. The end of a long work week, I deserve the weekend. I deserve a vacation. I deserve. Listen, church, we don't want what we deserve. You hear me on this? If we learn anything from the gospel and Jesus, we don't want what we deserve because he got it on the cross. Right? But, but our idols can lie to us and convince us, you deserve this hobby. You deserve this time away. You deserve this time with the girls. You deserve this time away with your, your friends. You deserve it. So we justify our pursuit of idols under this guise of, I deserve this. Third way that idols will camouflage themselves and probably most prevalent in our lives is they camouflage themselves as God's good gifts to us. Because why? Because they most often are. Now think about it. When we stop and behold the gift from God, and we stop short of giving him the credit and glory for that gift, at that moment, we've ceased to worship him, and we began to make whatever he's given us ultimate. So that's what, that's what the author of Deuteronomy 4 is getting to, right? He says, anything can become an idol. Any form or figure, the likeness of male, female, any animal, any birds, any fish, any of this stuff can become an idol. Look at verse 19. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Are these evil things? No. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all peoples under the whole heaven. These are good God-given things. So when I step outside and I behold a sunset, and I see its radiant glory and beauty. I can stop at the sunset and say, you know what? That is beautiful. Or I can take another step further and say, look at how good God is. Follow me? It, it's the difference between acknowledging a piece of art that, that an artist makes and then acknowledging the artist. Right? So it's one thing to behold the work of Picasso and go, that's beautiful. That's incredible. But you know what? That painting didn't paint itself. So when you stop at the painting and say, that is beautiful, right? You've taken the author, the creator, and placed him under that. And that's what Deuteronomy 4.19 is saying. We go outside, we look at the, the, the sun, we look at the moon, we look at the stars, we go, gosh, this is beautiful. And that's where we stop. And we fail to see that all that we behold with our eyes is the painting, and there is a glorious God behind the painting who is the creator, who is the painter, and that, that, that can happen in any area of our life. Your kiddos can easily become idols when you stop your affection at them. I love you. I'll do anything for you. And you fail to realize these little beautiful creations were put together by a holy God and entrusted unto you. Not that you would worship them, but you would worship the one who created them and allotted them to you. Follow me? Any good thing God does in your life, if it becomes an ultimate thing to you, can become an idol. And 
And then in verse 19, we get this description of what our hearts do. We are drawn away, we bow down to them, and we serve them. Drawn away, bow down, and serve. An idol is anything in your life that draws you away from God. Now it's becoming real, isn't it? Anything that can draw your affections away from God and cause you to bow down. That's the act of reverence. That's to treat something with respect and reverence and submission. And not only that, you serve them. You protect them. You defend them at any cost. This is what our heart does with idols. I love verse 20, though. I love verse 20. Listen to this again. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Listen, church, that's good news. That tells us that God is writing this warning to his people, people who are already his people, people whom he's, he's already rescued. Right? This is a reference to the nation of Israel in bondage and slavery in Egypt. God's saying to them, listen, you're mine. I've already rescued you. And your idol worship doesn't change that. You are mine this day, right now. Church, I need to hear that. Do you need to hear that today? You are his right now. God is speaking this morning to you, Christ follower. Watch yourselves. Beware. Don't forget, God has already rescued you. What Jesus has done on the cross through his death and resurrection has, is enough to sever your bonds to idols, to set you free from idols. And what God essentially is saying to those of us who are Christians, don't return once again to slavery. I've already set you free from that. Don't take the good things I've given to you and become slaves to them again. Now, I want to I make this real practical for us because, again, if we're not careful, we may be at that place where we're, where we're willing to say, you know what, I've probably got some idols in my life, but I don't know what they are, and so today was just a really good message. I'm just so thankful that God reminded me I have idols and, and, and not take that next step of saying, but what are my idols? How do we get there? How do we get to that place where we can discern these are the idols of my heart? I wanna give you some, uh, some things to think about. I'm gonna use a list of questions that, um, that I actually put together last year during the sermon series. Um, questions for you to ask of yourself. These aren't rhetorical. They're meant for you to truly ask yourself. So I'm gonna just invite you right now as I walk through these questions to be courageous enough to take some personal inventory um, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and maybe even reveal some things to you that you didn't see when you walked in here today. I'm gonna start with the imagination. This is a place where we can sometimes find ourselves playing with, toying with idols. Here's some questions to think about. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? Now, once again, it's not wrong to daydream. It's when our daydreams become ultimate, right? What do you enjoy daydreaming about? Another way to think about that is this. What does your mind wonder to effortlessly? Right? When you're in a stressful situation, you just begin to think about somewhere else or something else. We call it the happy place, right? Maybe it's the beach and a chair and the shade. 
you know, enjoying this ocean. Maybe it's somewhere else. What do you daydream about? Now, daydreams aren't idols until what? They become our first love. They become the thing we chase after, that we bow down to, and that we serve. Here's another one. What potential scenarios or scripts do you write in your mind, again, when you're daydreaming? Maybe even in stressful situations. Do you ever daydream about a different script for your life? Now, don't answer that to me. I know it's incredibly personal. We ask the question sometimes, how could this couple of 40 years, how could one of them have an affair? You know how? Because they began writing a different script for their life, and they convinced themselves that this other script would be better, and so they jump ship. Interview that person in 20 years, right? And they're going to tell you, hey, this script wasn't any better than the last script. Follow me? And so there's the caution there. When we begin to write these alternate scripts for our life, thinking if I could just live that script, everything would be good. And if we believe that, eventually what's going to happen is we're going to try to make that happen. And we'll, we'll hurt people in the way. Now let's talk about our pursuits, where we invest our resources. Here's one. What do you overspend your money on? I know, I know you don't overspend, but the rest of us do. Maybe it's something small. You know, maybe it's a latte or chocolate or ice cream. It was a confession. Um, maybe, it was, maybe it's something bigger than that. Maybe it's this new car. I have to have a new car every two years, or, right? Or I have to have this vacation. Whether I can afford it or not, I put it on the card and we go into debt. Where do you overspend? That might be an indication of where an idol is in your, in your heart. What do you sacrifice your time to achieve or to attain? I know, I know everybody in this room sacrifices time to attain things. If you're going to college, you're sacrificing time to attain a degree and hopefully a career. If you go to work every week, you go and you sacrifice time to attain a paycheck to sustain life and maybe even help support your family. We sacrifice all the time, but the question is not do you sacrifice, it's what do you sacrifice for? Follow me? What do you sacrifice your time to attain? What takes up so much of your energy that you have little time left for the other priorities in life? Do you ever find yourself saying, I'm just too worn out, I'm too busy? to do this thing that you know you should be doing, whether it's spending time with the Lord, spending time with your family, spending time with friends at church. You ever get to that point where you're like, I just, I know I should, I just don't feel like it. I know I should go to community group, but I just don't feel like it because I'm so tired. And so the question is, what are you spending your time on, right, that's allowing you to begin to compromise your other priorities in life? And what do you long for and desire to have that you will go to great costs or take great risks to attain? Where are you risking it right now in life? Risks aren't bad. When the Holy Spirit of God prompts you to build a relationship with that coworker in order to share the gospel with him or her, that's risky, isn't it? Right? They may reject you, they may get mad at you, they may talk about you behind your back, and so that's risky, but that's a good risk, isn't it? That's a risk worth taking. So not all risks are bad. The problem is when we start taking risks for the sake of our idols, where are you taking risks right now? Where are you risking being found out, being caught, being busted? Where are you taking financial risks and risking your time and risking your reputation? Ask yourself those questions. What are you taking risks for? Let's talk for a minute about emotions. This is gonna be a helpful indication of where our idols are. Um, what are you most afraid of losing? 
Hear me on this. What are you most afraid of losing? This is a big one for moms in the room. What are you most afraid of losing? Now, we don't want to lose the things in life that we love, the people in life that we love, but what are you most afraid of losing? Are you more afraid of losing this relationship or this child than you are losing Jesus? Follow me? It's when anything else takes greater priority, a greater position of love in our lives, that's when it becomes an idol. What are you most afraid of losing? Guys, and ladies too, probably, but especially our guys, what makes you disproportionately angry? So what do we mean by that? So proportionate anger means that the level of anger matches the offense. So like somebody is mean to your kid and you get angry, that's proportionate anger. Now don't sin in your anger, but we get that, right? It makes sense. That's proportionate anger, right? Somebody talks negatively about your spouse and you're like, well, that makes me angry for them. That's, that's proportionate. Now, I'm talking about disproportionate anger. When you go from zero to 60, fly off the handle, and then 30 minutes later, you're incredibly embarrassed by the way you acted. And you look back on it and you don't even know why you got so mad and you yelled at him or her or them. And You follow me? Disproportionate anger. That makes no sense at all. Potentially, there could be an idol there. And then how do you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes? I know we'd like to say, well, I just submit all my prayers to God and it's his will. That's the, that's the good Bible school answer. Thank you. But let's be honest. Have you ever been frustrated at God when he doesn't fulfill a prayer the way you pray it? Or is it just me? Right? Okay. I can remember in the third grade getting so mad at God that I was crying when I was praying because he didn't make a girl named Amy my girlfriend. Right, God, would you just like help her to see how cool I am? Would you make her like me? And then not only did Amy not like me, like a week later she started sitting in a different place in the room, and like it just like I just get, I got angry. Now, see how silly that is. But don't we do an adult version of that sometimes? This is what I want to happen, God, and I laid it before you in faith, and I believe you can do it. And then when it doesn't happen, we get frustrated. Be cautious. That could be an idol you're praying for. Last two I want to mention is this under this category of functional salvation. I need to define this, okay? So when I ask you who your Savior is, you tell me, Jesus. Good, you've all been to Sunday school. Great job. Now, I know you believe that in your heart. The problem is functionally, though, we make other things our Savior. Track with me here, okay? I'm not questioning your salvation. Functionally, we make other things our Savior. Here's here's a question. To whom or to what do you look to for stability, security, and acceptance? Now give me a Sunday school answer. Where are you supposed to find those things? In Jesus, right? But when functionally we start looking for those things in things or people, we've functionally made other things our Savior, haven't we? Jesus has come to me, and I'll give you acceptance and security and stability, I'm the only one who will be faithful to you. I am the same today as I was yesterday and I will be tomorrow. I am never changing. My love for you endures forever. And yet, when we go to other things for that security and stability, what are we saying? I want this to be my savior today. Now, here's another thing to think about. To whom or to what do you look to, to, excuse me, look to for trustworthiness, loyalty, and delight? Because Jesus says, I want to be those things for you. Listen, church, I want to be those things for you. 
your Savior is saying to you today, he's reminding you today, I and I alone want to be those things for you. I don't want you looking to anything I've created for stability or delight or security or hope because those things I've created for you, they're just a painting. They're a reflection of who I am and they will let you down. I didn't create the sunset to sustain you. I didn't bring your wife into your life to give you sustainable joy. She's going to make you mad. The joy is going to diminish. I didn't bring you children into your life that you would have purpose and meaning and watching somebody else follow me. Those are all good gifts to remind you of the giver. I and I alone want to be your delight, your place of, of, of trustworthiness and security and acceptance and stability. And when we run to anything else besides Jesus for that, we're bowing down to it. Follow me? You're bowing down to it and you're serving it and you're worshiping it. Now, what I was tempted to do right now and when I was doing my sermon prep this week um, was to go to the book of Hebrews and just start reading chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. But then I thought, if I do that, um, they're going to go to sleep on me, okay? Um, not because it's boring, but because it's a lot of time to do that. Now, the reason why I wanted to do that is because really the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. And specifically in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and into 11, what the author of Hebrews is saying is Jesus is better than anything. He's a better sacrifice. He's a better priest. He's a better way into the throne room of God. He is better than anything else you could find here on earth. And that is the, the radiating message from Hebrews is Jesus is better. So instead of reading all those chapters to you, there's your homework. We're going to look at a few words that he spoke in John chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Jesus is having a conversation with some Jewish folks from the nation of Israel. Verse 31, look at what he says. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you. So you knew that without even reading it, didn't you? Now look at what they say back to him in verse 33, because I think this is our struggle today. Verse 33, they answered him and said, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, that's a pretty ridiculous assertion, isn't it? We've never been slaves to anyone. Oh, really? What about Egypt? What about your bondage to Pharaoh? Like, that's not a true statement. But did you see how they got so quick, they were so quick to be defensive? Set us free from what, Jesus? We're not enslaved to anything. See, I think that's our struggle today. I know it's mine, right? Who here wants to admit I'm a slave to anything? But look at what he goes on to say. He answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's Jesus' words. Don't walk out here today mad at me. Jesus said that. Listen, brother or sister in Christ, if you're struggling with sin, if you participate in sin, you're making yourself a slave to that sin. But now, Jesus' hope is what? That we would be set free. Look at where he 
goes next. He answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's what we're after today. How does the gospel set me free from idol worship? And Jesus said, don't fool yourselves into thinking you're not slaves. Anything you submit your life to, anything you bow down to, anything you chase after and serve, anything that becomes a first love to you, you willingly make yourself a slave. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus is saying to you, church, listen, I've already set you free. Quit going back into slavery. I've already set you free. So how do we rest in this freedom? How do we attain this kind of freedom? Here it is, quite simply. You and I must believe that the promises of Jesus are better than whatever your idol is promising you. Hear me on this. Some of your idols promise to you peace and joy and security. And in a momentary sense, you find little snippets of that in them. You do. Your career has convinced you if you'll give yourself to it, bow down to it, it will make you happy. And there are probably some moments where you feel pretty satisfied in what you're doing. Now, is that sustainable joy? No, that's momentary happiness. Jesus isn't saying that you won't find some pleasures by pursuing idols. What he's saying is, I need you to believe that what I'm offering you is better than what your idols are promising you. John Piper says it this way in one of his books. He says, when we trust the promises of God, we we sever the root of corruption and sinful desire by the power of a superior promise. You'll never rid yourself of sin by trying to quit sinning. Essentially what John Piper is saying, what Jesus is saying is you've got to believe the ultimate truth. That what Jesus is offering you is better than anything else you could find here on earth. Trust me in this. Jesus said when you know this truth and you rest in this truth, it will set you free. Free from what? Being slaves to sin. Anything in our lives can become an idol. Anything that takes the place of first love. Idols are most often the good things that we have received from God that have somehow become ultimate things. And we're reminded today that Jesus has stepped into the world to save sinners and rescue us from our idols. Now, I want you to hear me on this, church. This is where we're gonna land today. When we make much of Jesus in our life, when we reorient our hearts in worship towards him and him alone, the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And that's not just an old song we like to sing around here. That's a gospel truth. When we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light. In light of what? love and his grace and his mercy and his goodness to us see the answer to idol worship isn't just throwing down the idol you've got to find something better to worship and i want you to i want you to hear this today that's jesus if you're here today and you're like man that sounds great but i just don't know jesus like that doesn't make sense to me i just want to let you know right now that today is the day i want to encourage you to take that step of faith towards jesus by trusting in him and him alone If you're here today and you want to make that decision and you're not quite sure how to do it or you're not quite sure um, how to pray through that, in a minute after we watch this testimony, you're going to have, we're going to have prayer partners down front and our worship team will be back up on the stage. Would you grab one of our prayer partners today and let them pray with you? 
So what I want to do now is I want to give you a chance to hear from one of our elders, Larry Roberts, and how his journey with Christ has led him through uh, the process of idol worship, and, uh, and then we'll respond. So if you guys are ready, let's run Larry's video. Hello, my name is Larry Roberts. I've been uh, at Solid Rock Church for 35 years as an elder. My wife and I joined in 1983 along with our three children. Okay. Uh, at the age of nine years old, I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. It was during a summer that uh, I was at the church with the pastor and four of my compadres, and we were painting the church, the auditorium in the church. The pastor was up on the ladder and he was talking to us and telling us about Jesus and how to be saved and uh, what a joy it was to be saved and how life would be changed for us. And he looked down and he said, uh, would any of you boys like to have that type of a life? And I said, yes. And he said, well, let me, uh, let me go over the prayer with you, salvation prayer. And we went through the salvation prayer and I accepted Christ that day. I would like to tell you about how I became a workaholic. At the age of nine, my dad had me out in the cornfield driving a pickup. And from there, I just continued to work all the time. I helped my father. He uh, was a plumber and an electrician. He taught me all the, that he knew about it. And I just continued on. Uh, I guess the, the turning point in my life was when I met my wife, Deborah. That was in 1967. We were married in March of 1967. Uh, she was a beautiful young Christian girl, and we got married. We had children, and my desire was to make the best life possible for them. And that was by working, I thought. Uh, I spent 80, 100 hours a week at work, seven days a week as long as I could. I had my own business, and we were trying to get it off the ground. And I didn't have a whole lot of time for my wife and my children. So she, uh, she put up with it for a couple of years. And then one day, she kept asking me to go to church with her, to spend more time with her and the children. And I said, I will, but I never did. So she came in one Sunday morning and she said, would you uh, please get up and go to church with me this morning? I said, I'm tired. Well, she exploded on me and said, let me tell you, you're about to lose me and your children because you're spending no time with us at all. We have no family life. And she says, I'm about through with it. Well, the reason that I became a workaholic was it gave me a way out. It uh, let me have a release, a time of, uh, of enjoyment. I enjoyed working. And it was just more or less a fulfillment for me that uh, 
able to have before. The part of being married, of uh, wanting to be the best husband and father that I could possibly be, and the best husband, provide the best life for my family. And, uh, you know, we all, I think most of us, feel sometimes that uh, we fail. So possibly that's the reason that I, I like to work so much because I, I don't want to be a failure. About 12 years ago, my wife was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. That has been a struggle for us in our life. Uh, of course, when we first found out that she had Parkinson's, it was, uh, it was very bad. You know, we, what do you think when you hear Parkinson's? Uh, Okay, it's a terminal disease, you know. How long are we gonna be together? What are we gonna be able to do? It was a time when we really needed the Lord. Uh, and he, he's been a part of it. Uh, and that, uh, you know, without, without God in our lives, it would be, I really don't know what it would be because God's been in my life so long, I depend on Him so much. We depend on Him for everything. And we, we turn over to Him the rest of, of what takes place in the lives that we have here on earth. You know, as I said before, God has helped me in many different ways. He has mellowed me. He has uh, told me that money's not everything. Money can't buy, you've heard the old song, money can't buy happiness? It can't. I'm here to tell you, it doesn't matter how much money you get. You know, it's not going to buy your happiness. It's not going to make you uh, have the joy that you need, the love that you need. It's not going to give you the health that you're going to need. It's not going to give you the love for one another that you need and your family. The only thing that's going to do that is loving God and letting Him be a part of your life. Amen. So thankful Larry uh, was willing to share a little of his story with us today. And I just want to say this to you. There's a lot of wisdom to, to glean from somebody who's walked with Christ for over five decades, been married, probably over six decades, been married for close to five decades. But essentially the theme of Larry's story is this, is what matters in life is loving Jesus. And so I want to just talk to you real quick before we wrap up. If you're here today and you're 18 years or younger, would you raise your hand? I just want to see where all my next generation folks are. Okay. Listen, if you want joy and purpose and meaning in life, if you want to get to Larry's place in life and look back without regrets and look at of the amazing movement of God in your life, you need to make Jesus your everything now. Okay? The world wants you to make a lot of their stuff your everything. You make Jesus your everything now. I just wonder if there's anybody here who's married who would say, you know what, I just, we need some help in our marriage. Anybody? Nobody wants to be honest with me? Okay, I need some help. Okay, thank you. There's two of us, three of us, and the rest of you are lying. So... If you want help in your marriage, listen to me. Here's what you need. You need to make Jesus your everything. Thank you there in the back. You need to make Jesus your everything. Making him or her your everything will destroy your marriage. 
You've got to make Jesus your everything. Any parents here today struggling with anxiety over your children? (laughs) Whether they're six or they're 60, yeah. Listen, you can't fix them by making much of them. That's what we want to do, right? We want to make much of them. We want to make life revolve around them. We want to give them the best of everything. And listen, you can't fix your children by making them your first love. You've got to make Jesus your everything. Let them see that. Okay? That's the point here. When we worship idols, what we're saying is that Jesus is not enough. And that's the message this morning. That's how the gospel sets you free from idol worship by making Jesus your everything. Let's pray together and then we'll respond. Father, thank you for um, this gentle yet very real reminder this morning of how easy it is for our hearts to gravitate towards idol worship. And God, not one of us walked in here today ready to admit that we are idol worshipers yet. God, through your word, you've exposed what is true. God, this morning across the room, I don't know what idols you have brought to the surface in each person's heart and life, but thank you for doing that. And so now what we want to do is we want to loosen our grip on these idols and we want to begin to make much of Jesus that the things of this earth, including our idols, would grow strangely dim. God, when we look at our children, we want to say, look at how good God is. When we look at our spouse, we want to say, look at how good God is. When we look at a sunset, we want to say, look at how good and how beautiful God is. Call our gaze off of the things of this earth. God, to behold your majesty and your goodness that we could worship the one true God. It's in your name we pray.